they can uh, take decisions, but the decisions that can then be challenged uh, in the EFTA court. And the EFTA court decides on this on the basis of international law. So it functions in this relation as an international tribunal under public international law, uh, giving binding decisions that bind the EFTA states. Uh, in addition to this, uh, we have uh, there is a setup which is equivalent to the uh, uh, preliminary ruling uh, system within the Court of Justice. But in that aspect, uh, there is no obligation on national courts in the EFTA countries to refer cases to uh, the EFTA court. So it's not like in the EU that courts of last instance have an obligation to refer cases. And the uh, <coughs> judgments by the EFTA court are only advisory to the national courts, not binding on the national courts. So the national courts of the EFTA states have the same status within the EEA uh, as the uh, Court of Justice actually has. It's a different type of status. Um, also, when it comes to uh, including new rules, uh, there is the uh, uh, EEA Joint Committee where the European uh, uh, where the Commission is represented and representing the EU side. Uh, and the EFTA Standing Committee is representing the EFTA side. So the, there are two votes in, uh, in this, and uh, decisions have to be taken by agreement between the two sides. So there's no new uh, EU rules are introduced into the uh, EEA without an agreement between the two parties. Uh, so this then preserves the uh, legislative sovereignty of the EFTA countries uh, in a formal sense. There are some challenges to this. Uh, one is, of course, if uh, new rules are not taken aboard, then uh, the rules of the single market are unraveled. Uh, and uh, the uh, other party, as the agreement neutrally says, which means the EU, may take protectionary measures. So, so if uh, the uh, uh, EEA agreement is not kept up to date with the developments in the EU rule, certain aspects of the uh, uh, internal market rules may be taken out completely of the agreement. So let's say that a new banking directive is not introduced into the EA agreement. Uh, free movement of banking services may be removed from the, uh, uh, from the corporation, from the market, until this uh, then might be settled. Uh, it is also uh, a matter of the national uh, authorities to uh, implement the EEA decisions into national law. So this is still as, uh, uh, as in any uh, international treaty and not a supranational treaty. It's up to the national legislator to, to do this. But if this, uh, if this is not done, then uh, the uh, uh, EFTA Surveillance Authority may raise issues on, uh, uh, on the implementation of, uh, treaties, uh, of obligations that have been undertaken by agreeing to uh, take aboard new rules in the uh, EEA Joint com uh, Committee. Uh, and this is, uh, of course, then the uh, question and the thorny question of dynamic homogeneity, because uh, it is not sufficient only to have the same rules at one time, but the rules must develop in line with the development in the EU. Uh, maybe we should go to the next one. Uh, okay. <coughs> And this goes all over then to the options. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, you, you, you didn't say this about the Supreme Court. Maybe you should say that the, the, the uh, ECJ first before we go on to uh, 
Yes, that's it. Yes, it's, it's, it's a slightly, but that's a slightly different topic oh. because that that is on the uh, assessment of the agreement yeah, right. that the okay. UK okay. will achieve. Uh, okay, so let's let's uh, proceed. Um, what we have done then and tried to discuss in the book is these types of possible options. So, in terms of of this, and here of course what we do is is that on the one hand you have the formal and the statement that the act is covered, whether they like. Uh, Theresa May is, is basically dismissing this Norway option. Or, uh, and, and nobody has, of course, outright uh, embraced it, even if there are some people supporting it. Um, and then you have these uh, other three. Now, the weak option, a la carte pick and mix, is to some extent what Hasbeta says you could very often have, because you will have a different combination anyway. But of course, it matters a lot where you have this pick and mix. And, and this is precisely what we have been saying, that this, you have no guarantee, I mean, you can't choose yourself, the EU will set the parameters for this. Would an option plus would, could be, mean, for instance, um, the customs union, that the uh, both internal market and customs union. Minus could be without that, but it's also other possibilities uh, in this. And then this last one, which we, we thought was very important to bring yeah, in. That's the most likely one. <laughs> that's what we think too. That's what we think too, that there will be a gap between formal statements, <coughs> maybe even some of the formal arrangements and the reality on the ground. And of course you have a lot of evidence from Switzerland <coughs> on this, with this autonoma Nachvollzug in Switzerland, where the Swiss are formally speaking, um, making their own legislation and so on, but in practice this has been vetted to, to the EU compatibility. Well, it's, this is what they've been doing since 1984. So they are checking because they had the networks with EU officials earlier, especially, so they knew. And they were interacting very closely, so there was a high level of trust also between Swiss officials and EU officials. With agentification of the EU and all kinds of other factors, this has become more difficult. And also the fact that they have to keep updating the agreements with Switzerland has made that option very unattractive for the EU. And, and there was a report that was leaked that Jean-Claude Piri was talking about saying that the EU is definitely ruling that out. I wonder if I may interrupt you and ask you whether you're making a distinction between Norway model and the Norwegian option, or are they exactly one and the same? At this point, I think we're thinking about the same. I don't think we're making any distinction on this uh, Sorry. in that sense. So that, and, and you can always question whether, <laughs> because also, um, it, it's a good point, because we could say that uh, there is no such thing as the Norwegian model, strictly speaking, because it's also an EEA. Uh, so that the Norway option would probably be the one specifically tailor-made. Okay, so maybe we to make that kind of distinction. We, we, we're talking about not the option for Norway, but the option for the UK. Yeah. 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 But I thought it was the option which yeah, was yeah. adopted yes. by Norway yeah. out of the model. I can see yeah. that now. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, that is an important distinction, you know, because the practice also will develop itself and could also diverge considerably from the formal arrangement that you have. Also, model has this kind of holistic connotation. Yeah, yeah. So even if you, in the book, you kind of use it interchangeably. I mean, I yeah. think that as soon as you can go to the it makes less more sense. Yeah. Less really than use option instead, actually. <coughs> okay. Um, if we then try to say something about possible lessons, go um, back to model. Um, the, the, I think the most important thing is the norm and the predictability. And, and uh, this is also what I 
this is what you get. For instance, the uh, Business Association of Norway is saying that this is imperative. Don't touch the uh, EA agreement. And they are very concerned about Brexit also starting to, to spin this out of control because there are also different types of sentiments in Norway about this. So, but, but it certainly emphasizes, of this uh, triangular structure, it certainly emphasizes this overstate sovereignty and national democracy. Okay, that's the type of structure. Maybe we say. can say something about the uh, court there. Of course, in comparison with Switzerland, uh, which have the same rules uh, on some of the aspects, uh, mainly on goods, but also on, uh, on the free movement of persons and uh, on establishment of physical persons because of the free movement of persons, but not on uh, legal persons, uh, not on corporations. And that is that uh, a lesson from Norway is uh, that in order to have the Court of Justice to interpret these rules, which are identical in their formulation to the rules in the EU treaties and in the secondary legislation, in order for the Court then to interpret them identically, uh, you need the institutional settings, the institutional build-up that the EEA has. So the uh, Court of Justice has said in the EEA context because of the institutional setting and because of the aims of the EEA, these rules are interpreted identically to the way the Court of Justice interprets the rules within the EU. Whereas in Switzerland, uh, in the Swiss case, they have interpreted the same rules differently uh, in line with the uh, so-called uh, Polydor uh, jurisprudence, which originates back to the free trade agreement with Portugal, uh, where uh, they said that since the, uh, the, the institutional setting and since the aims of the agreement is less than creating a single market, uh, there is uh, no guarantee for an identical in interpretation of uh, likely worded rules. So, so I think that's a, that's a major and important lesson also to take away from uh, the EEA as compared to free trade agreements. And of course treaty changes also will of course, changes, as you have been writing about, treaty changes will also automatically be, EU treaty changes in the area of the EA will automatically also feed into this agreement itself. So that's also something that the states themselves under this agreement will not have no influence on, on the treaty changes. But what, if you also then look at practice, I'm pretty sure that this, when, because we've heard this, people don't know about what the EA agreement is in many places. Of course, it's taking time now. So the only way in which to have assurance is that it is associated with being inside the EU. Then there's no problem. So, but, but the moment people start thinking and, and wondering, is this relevant or not? It's becoming much more comp complicated. So this is, this is a perceptual issue, a practical issue people will be facing. It's not a legal issue as such, but it has to do with how you are actually being treated by all kinds of different actors across Europe, whether they understand you as being part of this or not. So, so the behavioural component, I don't think one should underestimate in this, because Europe is very complicated and there's very large variations in terms of the competence people have in terms of or, or the framework. Now, what we have been discussing in the book also is that in Norway, the, the whole issue, especially of EU membership, is depoliticized. That basically also facilitates the ongoing adaptation process because you take away some of the political heat. You can bracket that because the system would have gone into stalemate otherwise. It would not have been able to deal with this issue if they were continuously banding uh, 
head, banging each other's head on the issue of membership. That's why they bracketed that and went on with adaptation and have had this more dynamic process. <laughs> now, so the question is, is this a necessary requirement? And this is a question for the UK. Is, is the depoliticization of this a necessary requirement? Or is it something that can still function when the situation is much more politicized? So if it is so that the depoliticized aspect is a requirement, will the UK be able to ever live under those types of circumstances? That was one. The second one is the other thing that, that I think uh, dawned upon us, especially when writing this book, because it matters how states are relating to the affiliation. So there are two <coughs> fundamental aspects of the whole debate on Brexit. One is the mode of association or affiliation that has been dominating the debate. I think equally important, or we think equally important, is how the state is actually dealing with this relationship. And that also has to do with the knowledge of the EU, or the notion of the EU, whether it is totally programming, or whether it is affecting, setting terms and so on, but still leaving quite a lot of wiggle room for states. And I think this is something, in, in, in retrospect, in the earlier work I did, didn't pay enough attention to this. So there is, so, so there is a question that comes in about the, therefore the ideological, or the socio-economic model involved in this, that, that is important, that also uh, spills over to Brexit. That Norway is, spe uh, politically speaking, much further left than the UK is. And there's no party in Norway that is really on par with the Tories in the UK. It's paradise, <laughs> So, so the, the, the dynamics are therefore very, are, are different in terms of this. Uh, and that also means that the EU has not undermine the welfare state. And I'm, I'm saying that because this was a very important consideration in, in the referendum in 94. The, the, the studies, opinion polls study of the results of the referendum show it wasn't cultural difference that meant that Norway <coughs> took a different choice than, uh, than Sweden and, uh, and Finland because the margins were fairly small. It was mainly a significant majority of women and public sector workers who voted against the EU membership for socio-economic reasons, because they wanted to protect the public sector, the state presence, and the generous welfare state, and gender equality, progressive policies. That was a fundamental aspect of people's uh, voting choice. They were af afraid that the EU was becoming a neoliberal juggernaut in '94. So that was much more of a consideration uh, in, in, in Norway. Uh, there were regional dimensions too, but I think if you look at the numbers, this was a fundamentally important one. So, so, uh, but, but I don't think these, the, the, the deepest fears have actually panned out because Norway has retained very much of this. Governments have also, also had right-wing strikes and privatization and so on, but they haven't undermined the social, the state's presence. You, you've changed over time, no, the Norwegian state's presence has changed mm -hmm. from a significant role in accumulation to a much more uh, only fundamental role in social protection and, and welfare and health. So the, the, you can say the state's role in society has changed that, but its significance, in, in, especially in terms of buffering, compensating itself, has not gone away. I Part think of maybe the trade unions now are starting to lose a bit of confidence. They are, because of also, of course, large-scale migration and so on can be undermining this, mm -hmm. unless you have assurance that you have similar types of salaries and so on. And there are issues coming up, because we're talking about large numbers and so on. So yes, this is coming up. But generally, up until recently at least, there was very, 
not even that much concern, but a lot of these things have become more politicized now for various types of reasons. And the question to the UK is, will can the UK do the same? And will there be one UK position or multiple UK positions? We came, I came from Scotland yesterday, mm. this morning. They're not exactly on the same wavelength on a lot of these types of issues. So there are different voices also inside the UK on this. And then, okay, the third one, that we are mentioning in the book, but probably could have played up more, is about the border. That, that Norway had to, basically was faced with a choice when Sweden uh, joined the EU, as to whether it wanted to have an open border, or whether it wanted to have a border with Sweden, with border controls and all this. So it asked the EU to be included in Schengen, which means that when we from Norway are going uh, to enter the uh, EU via the UK, we have to exit Schengen. So, because we are inside the internal border with responsibility for border controls. Part of the reason was because it would have undermined the Nordic Passport Union, which was established before in the free mobility in the Nordic region. So, there is a political importance in maintaining this open border. It's not with the same stakes as the Northern Ireland one, but we have also faced this type of issue of borders and, this, and the necessity of open borders. There's a very large trade leakage to Sweden. Loads and loads of people are going. Uh, trading <coughs> very large numbers uh, of uh, so calculating something like 8,000 jobs lost because of this. Um, because of differences in prices and fees and so on. Okay, um, something quickly on different logics. So I think we are, we are mentioning this also in the book. It could be somewhat, so far with the withdrawal agreement, we've seen somewhat differently logics being played out, that the EU has been operating much more in terms of establishing procedures and getting, uh, trying to ensure normal compliance. This, of course, has to do with affiliation, but it also has to do with, um, with the, uh, uh, the EU itself. And the UK started trying to, to uh, pursue a bargaining element. Uh, and of course, the fact that they are legally programmed also matters. And then this one. Yes, this is also a very important point, uh, which many people don't know, that the original EA agreement that was agreed between the EU and the EFTA countries was rejected by the Court of Justice uh, for uh, uh, legal reasons. And uh, this will be the same here too, that the uh, Court of Justice will have to approve the uh, agreement that is uh, reached between uh, the UK and the EU. And the EU is uh, restricted because they're acting within the uh, competences of, uh, of the agreement. So uh, the final word will be whether the agreement then is in accordance with the competences and the substantive rules of the treaty. And that final word will be said by the Court of Justice and not by the negotiators. Okay, um, what we also have, and I'm not going to say much, we're also trying to, to say something about the possible effects on the EA states of Brexit. So we have, we're discussing four different scenarios. Um, basically, the assumption is that the effects will be quite significant, regardless of which one, but they will be different under the different types of scenarios. And even the second one, uh, sorry, so the third one, scares a lot of people because it will upset the balance quite significantly within the EA. And also we think that the UK will politicize this 
consensual the unanimity provisions and so on, making it very difficult to reach this. So it could actually change. And it could also generate a lot of pressure. I mean, the other ones will also be generating pressure for renegotiating. And this could also generate other kinds of pressure. So under all these scenarios, <coughs> it is likely to, to see that there will be politicization and a lot of uh, uncertainty and, and so on, and different dynamics in both places. So I'm, I'm, we have elaborated on this in the book, but um, we're not going <coughs> to go through that now. We'll just uh, um, say something. Just just leave this now, and uh, I'll just stop and leave it for the discussion. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, um, before we go to discussions, I have uh, one security question. Whose bag it is? That's most important. <laughs> I mean, not for this session, but yeah. for the next one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we have uh, two persons to um, uh, kick off the discussion, Matthew and Calypso, who would like to, to start. Uh, to first? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you, yeah, John Eric and, and, and Hans Petter for presenting. And also, many congratulations on what is a really timely and, and very relevant. And very vital piece of scholarly work. Um, so much of what has been written about Brexit since the Brexit referendum has been on the referendum itself, right? Uh, you know, why the UK left, how, you know, whether it sort of exposed this sort of dislocation between Westminster and the population. And actually, it's only recently that experts are beginning to grapple with what is arguably a far more complicated and, and pressing problem. You know, exactly what will a post-Brexit Britain look like? exactly what will the relationship with the EU be. So I think it's, it's very symptomatic of this new and welcome phase in academic inquiry. Um, I think another reason why this is a very important piece of work is that it, it tackles the tendency that you see in some academic research and within policy-making circles to treat European integration very narrowly as a process synonymous only with the European Union and its members. Um, and actually by focusing on the multiple outsiders and the multiple ways that those outsiders interact with the EU, um, actually what the book is doing is, is revealing European integration to be a very complex and a very multi multifaceted process, right, um, that goes beyond the geographic borders of the European Union. Um, and, and that's not trivial because, you know, it, it allows us to begin to understand how the EU deals with its neighbours. So, fantastic. I'm completely on board with those sorts of things. Um, what I want to do is, I suppose, is spend a few minutes posing a group of three broader questions that, um, that I hope uh, will, will uh, sort of encourage some discussion. The first is the legalistic take on Brexit. I, I suppose I turn to you here, Hans Better, but more than anything. Um, you make the point quite forcefully in the book that the EU sees itself first and foremost, is a legal body. Um, and you say, uh, and you said in the presentation that the, the Court of Justice will have the final say, um, and that the EU uses very clear legal preferences and guidelines to guide external relations. Um, and of course, so far Brexit, so to, to many extent, to a large extent, has been a case in point. I do wonder whether, particularly in, in terms of the book, whether it might have being useful to bring politics slightly more into the into the discussion 
um, or at the very least to question for a moment, if nothing more, quite how indivisible or dogmatic the EU's treaty commitments and single free market freedoms actually are. Um, you know, you mentioned the pick and mix option. It's always striking, I think, that we hear so much about the UK's red lines. What about the EU's red lines? Um, I think, you know, you could go deeper. The EU is not a one-size-fits-all organisation. Um, the whole of its history essentially has been about flexing the rules to, um, you know, where there is a political imperative to, to do so. Um, you know, the, the EU cherry-picks. The, the EEA agreement is an example of cherry-picking. Um, I suppose, in, if I want to put that as in terms of a question as opposed to sort of various comments, quite how far is the EU, and by that I mean collectively, but also the various different institutions, because what's, what was interesting about your piece is, you know, the Court of Justice is going to come along, but I haven't read much at the moment about how the Commission is working with the Council and how the Council, you know, is going to try and sort of, is it going to have an effect on the, on the Court? So how does the EU collectively and the individual institutions, how far is... Uh, are these individuals prepared to go beyond the legal remit, remit and, I don't know, be politically elastic, I think is the phrase that I, I would choose. Second point, um, the image that come across very clear in the presentation and, and uh, similarly clear in, in the book is that the Norway EEA model is a mess, or is messy, should I say. Um, and, of course, you know, it's governed by multiple agreements, as you said, and there's a, there's a dichotomy in there as well, because... The agreement doesn't oblige EFTA states to, to take on new EU legislation, but they, they do, basically. Um, I want to push you on one of your sort of scenarios, your option three, about if the UK does become a member of the EEA. You said the, EEA, the UK will politicise the EEA. How will it politicise it? Um, you talked in the book, you didn't mention the presentation, but uh, of a third pillar, and I just wonder how that would work. Um, if the UK were to come into it. What extent might the UK weaken the EEA beyond politicising it? And I think this is a very, very important point, not only in terms of if the UK were to become a permanent member of the EEA, but actually I think what is becoming increasingly likely, certainly something that's been discussed in, in the UK and in Brussels, is if the UK were to the, use the EEA framework to extend its um, transition period. So that would, be, that would be something I'd be interested to hear. Third and final point, very brief, and I'll finish on this, concerns EFTA. EFTA is, a, is an issue that's very close to my heart at the moment because I'm, just, I'm in the early stages of writing in my book on, on the history and politics of the European Free Trade Association. And, of course, the book, very rightly, is about the EEA, but I'm just encouraging you just for one moment, if I may, to, to, for you to sort of push the EEA aside for a second um, and ask, you know, the... the the UK was a founder member of the of EFTA. Um, since it left, it's done pretty well. It's got you know what thirty odd um, free trade agreements with big countries. It's currently negotiating still others with big countries: India, Brazil. Um, I wonder whether you could discuss the Norwegian experience of EFTA, um, and in in relation to Britain, would Brits be allowed back into EFTA? Um, how, how might it affect the organisation? I say this because when I was at the archives, which are a very weird, um, sort of in a weird dungeon under the headquarters of EFTA, I'm sure you know, um, and uh, last year I, the, 
I have sort of showed around the building, and the after building, the headquarters in Geneva, is, is seven floors high, and it now only occupies the one floor. Um, and so I was given a whole floor to myself to, to, to research it, which was very surreal. And you, know, you hear doors slamming, and I'm not sure if it's the ghost of EFTA, a British former uh, you know, Secretary General's or something. But um, one of the Secretariat uh, officials said to me, well, if, if the Brits rejoin, they can have the other six floors. Um, and, you know, it was only doing it half-jokingly, of course. So, I, you know, I just wonder how will it affect the organisation, regardless of whether or not there is an EEA relationship afterwards. Um, but, yeah, I'll leave it there. Thanks again. It was a pleasure to read. Thank you, Matthew. I think uh, you, you made a headline, the, the first good news coming out of Brexit to get those floors into Yeah. <laughs> well, they've taken back control, right? No. There is an option to say no. Uh, which is um, over greatness because the greats, my British friend. Three EFTA countries have to agree, so they only have one collective vote in the EEA uh, committee. So uh, all the three countries have to agree that they want to accept the acquis. If one of them refuses, it has consequences also for the two others, and that's also a political aspect which uh, restrains uh, the use of this. Now, if uh, if the EFTA says no to take on board new key, uh, there is no right to retaliation for the EU. They can't retaliate, but they can uh, enact what is called protective measures in uh, the uh, agreement, which means then that they have a right to suspend the affected parts of the agreement. Nobody knows what is the affected part of the agreement, so we don't know. Uh, the other why is that not retaliation? I mean, it's the equivalent. Well, well it's, it's to maintain the balance, because if you have a free circulation of goods and uh, goods from one of the contract parties are under different conditions than the goods from the other uh, part of the agreement, then there will be an imbalance in, uh, in the market. So that's the, that's the logic behind it. The other, the other consequence, uh, or the other difference, is that the national courts have the last say, and that has been exercised by the Supreme Court of Norway. There, there are instances where the Supreme Court of Norway has said, no, we don't agree with the after court on this issue, and, and we maintain our uh, interpretation. And it uh, has had no consequences. There have been discussions of whether the after surveillance authority should sue Norway on this, but they haven't done that. Uh, so, so that is... But it's also very minor. Now, now another... Um, uh, but the main difference is on the substance, and that goes to, to your question and also several others. What is sort of the, uh, how can we envision a EEA minus or a Norway minus? And, and I would say that Liechtenstein is important. Uh, of course, the political reasons why Liechtenstein got the exceptions for free movement of persons are different to the UK. But what it shows is that it is possible, it is feasible to have. Uh, less or to have quite major exceptions mm. within the free movement, uh, the four freedoms. Uh, and that's, that's a, a political issue, it's mm. not a legal issue, uh, which Liechtenstein shows. Uh, Denmark even has exception from investment in summer houses within the EU. I mean, so there are, uh, on the matter of substance, how far to stretch the, free, uh, the four freedoms. I think the Court of Justice will not interfere. What they will interfere in is. Uh, on the matter of institutional integrity mm. uh, and on the matter of uh, rule of law and protection of rights. So if the, if the Court of Justice is dissatisfied with the agreement from this aspect, they will 
they will veto it, I think. But they won't, uh, they won't interfere in the substance. So there could be uh, quite large... Uh, uh, I mean, one could accommodate the red line on immigration, I think, uh, without uh, upsetting the, uh, the legal uh, build-up of, of the uh, uh, single market. Uh, the cost of not having a customs union and the border of Sweden. Oh, VIT is the catch word. VAT is the catch word there. There is, in all uh, commerce between uh, between uh, Norway and uh, uh, the EU, uh, VAT has to be deducted with export from uh, uh, the EU and has to be uh, imposed again. And there is no harmonisation of the VAT. That's the main difference, I think, and the main cost, which is an administrative burden, uh, both on, 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 the, on the administration uh, and on the market actors, of course, because they have to incur this extra cost of, uh, of processing the VAT. That, I think, is the main cost what, of... What, about, what does it do to border management? Because in the Northern Ireland debate, customs union always comes up as, it's well, if we don't have a customs union, we have to have a border. Yeah. Now, VAT can be can be uh, yeah, yeah. pulled in, in, in without and having a physical border. And it mostly is, yes. We have, so we have you know, uh, there are some official border crossings where if you want to process VAT in customs, you can, you can cross there, but you're allowed to cross anywhere. Uh, if you do and uh, you try to uh, evade VAT or customs if it's a third country goods, then of course it's a crime, it's a criminal offence that you're committing. Uh, so the, the border there are spot checks and there are spot checks so that's yeah. The yeah. there are spot and checks and most of this VAT stuff is done electronically most of it is done electronically yes. so on customs union just to stay on that point for a moment it, it really means that the debate in the UK everybody's obsession with being in the customs union uh, because of Northern Ireland is bad, is not founded because it really matters a single market. Yes, I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 I put this to go. No, but that's yeah. what's fascinating and because it's you prove that. We can, dedu- we can say this deductively, but <coughs> the Norway case shows the this. Yeah. The, customs, the head of the customs and the parliamentary questions actually said he's going to cost the UK something in excess of £2 billion pounds to actually sort of incorporate the, pocket, the, 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 the customs uh, restrictions. They can choose to do it that way, but they don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, I also can't get my head around this uh, customs union without single market. I mean, I don't understand that. So I think it, it, it's the opposite. You, you have to be, in, the internal market is what, what determines this. But of course, for the UK, um, not being inside the customs union uh, is, is a much more problematic aspect than for Norway, because the, the extent to which you have foreign components being put into pro- products like Japanese automakers and so on, they want guarantees from the UK government. That is quite different in the UK than it is in Norway because most of the goods coming out of Norway are, are, are resource types so mm-hmm. that are originating mm-hmm. in Norway. So you don't, mm-hmm. of course, you do have the problems with <coughs> customs clearance, but it's a different magnitude than the UK, mm-hmm. a significant difference. So, in that sense, for the UK, it's much more important. The Norway Plus with Customs Union is much more important for the UK than for Norway and the other EA states. But if you take away the single market, there would be no free circulation of the Irish border. No. I mean, so the Customs Union doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's the opposite, I mean, as you were saying. Yeah. 
So any other points? Yeah, yeah. Um, on trust, I think one of the interesting things, I mean, we're drawing on Johan Olsen's work on, on this about trust. And what he's showing is, is that in Norway that there is a difference between um, the, the formal arrangements and, and customs use and, and reality. But people still trust the system. Now, part of that also has to do with familiarity with the concept and the model. And of course, that's something you don't find. So there are two aspects of this, if you want. You have the vertical and horizontal you mentioned. In addition, you have the epistemic security you get from uh, the understanding the principles and the polity configuration itself is important. And then th this is what this, the nation state writes on, you know, in terms of people being familiar with this. And that also gen engenders trust. So if you at the same time have a state that actually delivers, I think that magnifies this effect. But the reality can be quite out of sync with these concepts we have about sovereign democracy and so on. And that's what you're seeing. But the question is, there is a break-off point. And, and where, when do you reach it? You know? So for now, we haven't reached that. But of course, things are being in more flux and there's more uncertainty and so on. The EU starts from the opposite. It doesn't have a justified or a kind of um, a story people are saying uh, that that everybody will actually uh, comply with because it's a political experiment. So the justification problem for a political experiment is much more, it, it, the challenge is much bigger than, than it is for an established system. So, so the EU starts on, on this from the, the opposite angle and it's therefore much more difficult because you have to develop both the epistemic security and the type of, of trust from, from uh, delivering and, and, and operating of people's normative instincts. Um, there were a lot of very good questions here. Fisheries we didn't touch. Um, I mean, just keep in mind that Iceland is also going to be part of this. And of course, the UK has its own history with, uh, with Iceland on, on fisheries. I don't think this is going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And part of the, the first scenario we had about no agreement probably would mean that you wouldn't have to renegotiate the entire framework mm. of fisheries management. And, so and would the EU accept that the UK takes regains its fishery mm. rights? But you had to cede your fishing rights to the EU when you joined the EU. Well, but but I, I, I'd like to say one thing because Alexa uh, <coughs> challenged us uh, to be more explicit in our conclusions. We haven't really discussed this, but I think we are quite explicit in the, in the last paragraph. <laughs> or, uh, the last page, yeah, this one big paragraph. Well, and I think what that says, at least from my point of view, I don't know whether you may agree, is that a soft Brexit is impossible. I mean, the only viable options are a hard Brexit or a Remain, in my view. I, I, I think that you could have a sneaky solution. That's what I'm <laughs> suggesting actually, oh, on, on the sneaky solution. I think mm. you will have a Potemkin uh, uh, village more than, than actually a, a firm commitment mm. by the UK mm. to do so. Mm. So I think, no, in that sense, I, I think we are more in line because I think they would, might slide into it mm. as some mm. kind of uh, suspended animation or something like that. It's not something they deliberately will choose. And, I, and we are not advocating that either, you know, because of, of the issues that we have experienced. So, but, but it is also like the EA itself for Norway. It, it, it was intended to be an interim agreement. Mm. And it has just continued and continued and, and, and mushroomed and so on. So, so that's the, there is a sort of, sort of a <laughs> there is a resilience of the path dependency here that, that one should not uh, underestimate mm. in the sense in terms of, of getting in a situation where you have opposites that are incompatible. You know, you asked about the politicization aspect and so on. The thing in Norway is that they've bracketed, as I said, the, the membership issue. So that, that makes it easier to continue with the uh, adaptation. 
without if the membership issue had come up like the Tories are wanting to do in the UK or many actors actually then you would have had the politicization on specific issues all the time the question of membership and what it entails and so on the sovereignty terms and all this would automatically have been feeding the agenda this is what they have changed in Norway so the argument we make in the book is that this actually facilitates the adaptation mm -hmm. process because people know that oh we're not going to be discussing membership now so we're just okay but the cumulative effect of this is therefore also ignored also yeah. the way it's in which it's transforming yeah. society yeah. but also keep in mind when i said this about norway being more left the socio-economic model we have of course a more comprehensive socio-economic model than the eu but the eu also aspires to that you know? and that's different from the tories mm. so there is there's also some element of of congruity in the underlying interest in this so that should not be underestimated because so far the EU has not been such a fundamental affront to any of the things that we have been Wake up, cool. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't close these discussions. I suggest that we move it to the common room and have some, uh, to the garden even, <laughs> if, if we can uh, get a drink there. Uh, uh, otherwise, um, there is a drink, I think, upstairs, not outside. But uh, wherever we will continue, um, at least till five, and then maybe in different contexts. I myself um, confirmed two to theses which I wrote from my era legal studies. Hans Peter convinced me that the only people who will earn on Brexit are lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> and Jon Eric convinced me that there is nothing like politically neutral law. <laughs> so with these optimistic uh, 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 conclusions for those who have no degrees, I invite you for a drink. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you very much.